Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so delighted to be joined today by CJ Hauser. CJ teaches creative writing at Colgate University. She's the author of two novels, Family of Origin and The Fremaways. In 2019, she published The Crane Wife in the Paris Review, which reached more than a million readers all over the world. The Crane Wife, the book version, is her first work of nonfiction. CJ, hi. Hello, hello. Hello. Who has a Paris Review essay that goes viral? (laughs) That's incredible. Tell me about that. I was pretty excited just to be in the Paris Review. That was my nerdy literary dream. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, things went kind of cuckoo bananas and it was terrifying, but in a nice way, I think. (laughs) I love that. And I'm wondering if now that you've built an entire essay collection around this uh, centerpiece essay, if the meaning of it has changed for you or if you have a new perspective on it uh, revisiting in 2022? Yeah, I mean, I think it was more like the book is sort of a deep dive into the the question that the essay poses, at least for me, it's like the place from which I wrote it, which is like, David Byrne, how did I get here? Um, Because I was the sort of person who's like, I have read feminist books. I am overeducated. I'm certainly not going to fall into these traps of making myself small or whatever, which was very proud of me. And we know what happens when one is proud is that the universe comes along and tumbles you. (laughs) Um, And so I think the meaning of it has changed in the sense that the essay was sort of meaning like wow this happened and like it wasn't okay and the book is more like okay so what are the stories in my life that I started with that sort of got me to this place and then what does it look like to try to do the work of of unpacking like what I expected my life to look like and how those expectations maybe had more power over me than they should have I I I grapple with this a lot, actually, and I I wonder, like, where do you think the myths about who we are, what love is supposed to be, come from? Like, I'm thinking about women's magazines and movies and pop culture in general, but, like, it it seems pretty ingrained, huh? It's absolutely ingrained, but, like, in in a way, I was such an oddball child who grew up with Pippi Longstocking Mm -hmm. and... Harriet the Spy, um, you couldn't have paid me to read a women's magazine as a teenager. And so I cannot blame them. They are blameless, at least in my case. It still gets in the water, though, I think. Things get in the water, but I think it's also just a desire for communicating our happiness to other people. Like, we learn that certain shapes of a life or shapes of love mean mean that it is love and I put that in scare quotes right like (laughs) if if your partner gives you flowers then it means they love you and like that's great if you're a person who likes flowers and um by the way if you write an essay where you say that you don't like flowers no one will ever give you flowers again which is a mistake I made (laughs) incredible do they give you something else they, well, I have a very lovely partner who decided not to listen to me, and now it just brings me flowers anyway. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for understanding the difference between what I said and what I meant. Um, but the point is, there are things that you're like, oh my gosh, yeah, my partner brought me flowers. And then someone else is like, oh yeah, that must mean they really love each other. And then you're like, yeah, it must mean we really love each other. And that makes it like 
a thing that you can pass along and communicate, but it doesn't necessarily, it could be a hollow symbol or it could be a really meaningful symbol. And so I think that sometimes we say yes to things that have all those symbols and those familiar shapes. But if you're a person like me, then like that's actually not a shape that suits. Mm -hmm. And so then you have to figure out your own way, which is trickier because then you have to learn your own way of communicating your happiness to yourself and to other people. Absolutely. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And, and you kind of have to, you have to rewrite your narrative. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about that, like creating a narrative arc for yourself in, through these essays. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, I actually had a friend who read the book who said, it's like, you've written about all these things that happened so long ago. It seems like they really still weigh upon you. And I was like, that's not really how I think about it. Like when I write about things, I write about things to give them meaning because even though my life is not sort of like a straight shot, uh, I don't know, love story, a straight shot, career story, a straight shot, I don't know, spiritual story, whatever it is a person might think of, um, all of the parts of it disjointed and fragmented as they are have meaning to me. And so I wanted to write a book whose narrative shape was really fragmented, but I wanted the reader to leave the experience of the book feeling like, whoa, like there were a lot of different things in here, but they all add up to a really meaningful life or they add up to a person being able to make meaning from their life, even though it doesn't have that traditional shape. Yeah. Um, one of the um, tricks you use that I love is um, to write about your high school boyfriend. We, we see him in three acts, which is such a fun theater kid thing to do. <laughs> and so, so we're watching you evolve as, as this is going on. And, and by you, I mean you as in you write from the second person point of view. Yeah. Tell me about that. I have a beloved teacher, the writer Mark Weingartner, who once said to me in a joking way, he was like, second person is just the interior monologue of a fuck up. And I was like, that's me. Gosh, so I have to like, write that down. Oh my God, it's so good. He's so good. But yeah, the the closer it is to home, the more likely, the more painful it is, frankly, the more likely I am to sort of be a weenie and sneak into the second person. And I think that's a story that it was really hard to write about um, and to decide if I was going to write about. And so second person it was. Um, but I think, I don't know, uh, the boy, as I call him, mm -hmm. um, was like the first great love of my life and kind of a foundational one in a big way. And I hope that the arc of the three act play that I, I put on mm -hmm. about our love story is one that shows like, it's about me. It's like, it, and I don't mean that in a, it's about me way. Like, I mean, like the things that went wrong or the things that were hard about it have nothing to do with what a partner did or didn't do really. They have to do with like the way I turned that into a story that really affected me. 
and the way I had to find a way to like wiggle out of it and make it mean something else to me and like to choose to be the person in charge of doing that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I loved the Men of La Mancha essay, kind of the realization that you are also tilting at windmills, perhaps. Oh my God. Yeah. I am such a Quixote. This whole book is my Quixote romp, my quixotic romp, you know? I mean, I'm a person. I think Quixote, when we think of Quixote, we probably think of someone who read so many stories about knights that he was like, well, of course, this is what my life is. Of course, I'm on a quest. Of course I am. And I sort of tease men, especially about being quest prone in that essay. But like, and I say like, when has a woman ever had time for a quest? Mm -hmm. But in a way, this whole book is me, um, I don't know, making myths of things, trying to figure out why my life feels unsatisfying to me if I'm not a knight sallying forth on an adventure and like how to make peace with like slower, more everyday kinds of pleasures. Absolutely. And that's so, yeah, that's, that's the, that's the rub. I, I love that in the essay Fox Farm, you do come to this, this isn't spoiling anything, I don't think. Um, you do find a way to live differently in the day-to-day? I think it's a combination of the fact that I'm living differently, but I think a lot of us, um, I mean, in that essay, I'm talking about how I I sort of, my house was just sort of a community building space. I really committed Mm -hmm. to, I've always been a person who loved and needed community, but I really committed myself to like prioritizing that in my life. And it was a really beautiful thing to work on and not an easy one but I think for so many of us for some people maybe it's like I haven't prioritized that and maybe that's a thing that would be meaningful to me but I think for a lot of us we have community but we're just like not calling it a love story we're not calling those relationships love because we've been taught that love is when someone brings you flowers Mm -hmm. and then there's a will they won't they and then there's a misunderstanding and then there's a grand hurrah and they get back together again like but there are so many things that I think it's just the naming of them that makes us feel the presence of that love. And so for me, this book was really like a taxonomy of love stories of my life that are not necessarily romantic and naming it has helped me to feel like, yeah, I have a life that's full of love when I have a partner, when I don't have a partner. It's, it's not about that. I love that. Um, and you do, you, you talk about your family so lovingly. Um, we're first introduced to them. Um, page one. <laughs> Tell me about setting up expectations for readers for the role your family plays in your life, I guess. And then going from there. I think, I mean, it, it's an interesting thing about family cultures where you grow up inside them. So you just sort of assume when you're very, very young that like maybe everyone's family, mm-hmm. of course, sort of like your family. And then, I don't know, the first time you go to daycare, you go to a friend's house, you go to school when you're little, and then you're like, oh, this is not, like, something is weird about my family. Something <laughs> weird about your family, too. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's everyone, but that understanding that the culture is really specific, I think. And in my family, part of the specific culture is that my, especially my grandparents, just led these insane, story-worthy, dramatic lives with, like, cowboys and guns and murders and the rockets going on strike and like epic love and like I just that 
was what I was raised on. And so I think that first piece in the book, Blood, um, is sort of, it's like a hope chest is how I think of it. Like a hope chest is like all the little things that they used to give a woman from her family in order for her to go off and be married. And so I thought about like, what are the narrative hope chest items of my life? And it's all these family stories. Um, And it's, I don't know, it's quite a way to be launched into this world. I mean, I I think that Overall, if you have relatives who somehow embody the American dream, then your expectations are set up for <laughs> failure in 2016 or 2022. Yeah. I mean, I think God, I'm thinking about this essay. My friend Helen Rubenstein wrote this beautiful essay. I think it's called The Marshmallow Test, but it's about the marshmallow test where little kids are left with the marshmallow and do they eat it or not. Mm-hmm. And she does this really brilliant unpacking about how they say the experiment is about whether or not kids have like willpower or control. But what she's saying it actually shows is whether or not you've been taught that like you can trust someone when they tell you that marshmallow, you're going to get to eat it later if you wait. Um God, I love that piece so much. And I think that's sort of it, right? Like it all depends on what we were told was true about the world when we were little and how quickly either we discovered that wasn't true or were forced to discover that wasn't true, which happens to some of us earlier than others. Um, but all of that is hugely impactful story-wise, life-wise, all of that. And and I do love um, particularly the essays in which you talk about a specific movie or or TV show and um, what you, or or book, uh, what you thought you knew about love, what you thought you had gleaned from them, and then revisiting them. Tell me, tell me a little bit first about uh, the Philadelphia story. God, I love the Philadelphia story so much. So it's a 1940s movie adaptation of a play. It's Catherine Hepburn. It's Jimmy Stewart. It's Cary Grant. The director was queer. I'm pretty sure it was secretly written by a blacklisted author. A writer friend of mine, Jacob Appel, just just told me that in a letter recently, and I have to look more into that. But like the whole thing is sort of a society drama. And like, and then of course Hepburn and Grant, I mean, there are all of these closeted queer folk who are in the movie too. So it's like a society drama, but the edge and, and wisdom to sort of like see through that and interrogate it and undercut it is like so present, at least for me, I think that's what I've always responded to in it. But when I was little, and by little in this case, I mean like a baby teen, um, I was just like, Catherine Hepburn, teach me what love is, like teach me what man to choose. Of course, Catherine Hepburn should have taught me that I was bisexual, but instead <laughs> she just taught me that I loved her a lot and I didn't know what that meant. And probably Jimmy Stewart was the answer. Oh, no, wait, it's Cary Grant. Oh, no, wait, it's I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think when art is moving or inspiring, there's some lizard part of my brain that always wants it to be like the panacea answer to everything for me, where I'm like, this is it. I figured it out. Thank you, the Philadelphia story. And of course, the sand always goes from beneath your feet, and then you have to figure it out on your own or see it in a new way. Absolutely, and 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 I do. I there's a line in there that I really love. You, you say you find other people contagious, and that yeah, that really messes with the narrative. Yeah, <laughs> it does. I think um, 
I don't know, I'm a tiny minor bird. And I think that when people I love use particular slang, I catch it, I find myself picking it up. When I'm hanging out with friends with like a Southern accent or friends with a British accent, I find like, I won't go into an accent, but I find that my cadence changes a little bit. Like I'll match their cadence and mirror mm -hmm. back to them. And that's a thing I've been trying to both, I don't know, embrace as a writer, it's, it's good for fiction because you mm -hmm. can make characters and sort of like get into those rhythms in your head. But as a person, it's like, no, which part of me is me? And which part of me is sort of chameleoning all the time? And so the balancing act of that is a work in progress. Everything in my life is a work in progress, <laughs> frankly. But, but yeah, I, I, it does seem like the we, the big we, tend to take on the qualities of our partner or tend to become more interested in the things our partner is interested in. And um, that's so lovely until it is not. <laughs> I think about this a lot. I think it's important to like respect someone's interests. And I think it's important to like, I don't know, be interested in what it is they love about it. But I don't think you have to love the thing. Um, like, if you're lucky, you do. And that's great. But when I've, I don't know, when I've been in love, and someone is talking about something that they really adore, it's contagious in its own way. It's like, oh, my God, I love how much you love this. It's not that I love it, but I love how much you love it. Um, and I think that's a way that I'm trying to be now to like, Love how someone loves something, but not feel like I have to carry it myself. Love that. Um, I also, of course, love the essay called Mulder, It's Me, which <laughs> has has a couple of different meanings, it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the Mulder and Scully dynamic that we so much, so many of us were brought up on that and, and uh, relationships like that. And yeah. I, oh my God, like how much time do you have to do <laughs> podcast because I'm ready for that. But I think the, the thing that I was so addicted to about their dynamic on that show was the fact that they're so different, but they're different in a way that creates this like perpetual motion machine of them feeding off each other and like pushing each other. And I imprinted on that as like a way that a relationship should be. Um, and I think the essay is a lot about like, not pathologizing difference so much or finding some sort of like like it doesn't a relationship between two people doesn't have to be like this perpetual cycle of back and forth thing you can just be people who love each other and respect each other a lot and believe in each other and so I wrote about my friend Liv and Meg's wedding and how by officiating their wedding I sort of like saw that that was true about them um and it made me really happy I love that and it, and it I, I do think it's it's one of those things where, yeah, if you've been to a wedding or two, how many times does the officiant or the someone on the groom's side say, you complement each other really well? Yeah. And like, maybe that's great for a lot yeah, of Yeah, sure. Maybe that's like a big part of what makes them go. But it's like, not the only thing I really think that, I don't know. I think there's like a certain amount of, 
there's something that when it's really good can just feel easy and can just feel like yes to this person. And there's not a reason, there's not a mechanism. It's just a yes to this person. And then I think on top of that, it's a lot of, you know, generosity and empathy and caring about them as well as yourself. And like, you can do that with or without a complimentary machine. The complimentary <laughs> machine of Mulder and Scully isn't going to do all the work for you, it turns out. <laughs> lies we were raised on um beautiful lies though (laughs) very beautiful another essay that I loved partly because I feel like you and I had the same takeaway and it's that's a lot to admit but I feel like maybe a lot of people have this takeaway from Rebecca oh man of of finding out that he did in fact murder spoiler alert um his first wife and the first thought is well great that means (laughs) he chose me i'm not dead (laughs) oh my god it's so messed up um my friend emily alford wrote this amazing essay for jezebel called the nihilistic horniness of the gothic read or something like that and i just i loved it so much and it was her passion for rebecca that really sent me off reading it and when you get to that point the main character like should be like oh no I've married a murderer but instead her reaction is like oh he murdered her good so he loves me more (laughs) and it's so twisted and it makes a kind of sense and I think seeing that on the page um, that essay is a lot about like being with someone who had been married before and who had children and how I as a small spirited person in that time of life was like struggling with that or not being small. I think many of us, it's hard. We don't read a lot of stories about it. There aren't a lot of necessarily good role models for in everyone's life. Like I think a lot of people are lucky to have good role models for that in their life. But, and I think it's becoming more and more common for people to like see that modeled for them, but I hadn't had that before. And so I really, it's, ugly to admit but I struggled with it and then seeing it in Rebecca in this like really grotesque exaggerated gothic murder way uh made me realize like oh no I don't want to be anything like that no thank you <laughs> let's talk a little bit about robotics because oh I I I, I really enjoy um your takes both in um, the essay about Tinder and bots and the essay about the um, robot competition. Yeah. (laughs) Robotics competition. That sounds better, right? Yeah. I just get obsessed with things. I was writing a story a million years ago about um, a drone pilot, this mother who is also a drone pilot. And so I started doing all this research. I was really fascinated and disturbed by the drone program. And like the more research I did, and eventually I wrote that story and I published that story, but I was still researching, which I guess at that point no longer qualified as for that story. Mm-hmm. And I just went the, down the rabbit hole of getting obsessed with, um, I don't know, the field of AI 
well, I won't say today because at the time I was doing the research, it was 2013 and so many things have changed since then. Right. But I went to this robotics trial um, that the Defense Department was running to create a robotic first responder. And we had just, Fukushima had just happened. And so the thinking was like, sometimes a person cannot go in and save the day. So like, what if we used robotics to do this? And I think part of that was, wouldn't that be great to do? And part of that was also the Defense Department being like, remember when robots were sometimes okay and not drones who killed civilians? I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> that's also a thing. Um, but I was so fascinated by the idea of someone who could, someone, a robot, who could care for someone, who could save the day, who could save someone, but not feel a way about it, because I have tried to save people in relationships, which is not a good thing to do, and is an embarrassing thing that I have done, but that essay is sort of a meditation on that as I go through the robot trials. Absolutely. And it's, it involves Florence Nightingale, and trivia about her that I did not know. Yeah, she was basically the first person who was like, hey, what if we had data? <laughs> like, wouldn't it be cool if we kept data about our patients and like what worked for them and what didn't work for them so that we could do a better job of taking care of people in the future and we could use it to sort of make more informed decisions. And when I was writing this essay, it was like March, 2020. And the pandemic was just starting. And I like was reading this book about Florence Nightingale. And I saw that. And I was like, holy shit. Can everyone listen to Florence Nightingale now? Maybe? Now would be a great Maybe. time for us to listen to Still. Florence. Um, but she, I don't know, like so many women and people of many genders throughout history, like the most, I don't know, to me, vital and fascinating and impactful things she did get erased by the idea of like she was a lady nurse and maybe <sighs> some people loved her and it's like well wait but what about data collection in Crimea because that sounds pretty cool to me too that is also an important part of the story yeah and then of course your essay on grief is so lovely and 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 made me want to go back and uh watch season one of SNL so <laughs> It doesn't hold up. It has its moments of absolute glory. I will like worship at the altar of Gilda Radner. Um, but I mean, I mentioned this in the essay. Some of the skits are really, really racist. And I think there are a lot of people who, when it, they aired, were like, hey, yeah, that feels bad. And I noticed that's bad. But for me, going back, that was a horrifying part of it. But the essay is really more about like, I don't know that family, the the not not ready for prime time is what they were called during the golden age. The not ready for prime time family of Murray and Ackroyd and Belushi and Radner, um, and and that whole crew. And I don't know, it's a it's a muck of an essay. But I go searching for John Belushi's tombstone, and then somehow along the way, my mother talks me into being the family delegate in charge of scattering my grandparents' ashes. And so it's sort of a Funny, haha, but actually, is it? You do that very well. <laughs> um, I also just want to do a brief shout out to the essay Uncoupling because I am a woman who has chosen not to have children. Yeah. And um, that in itself is still still feels like a wild divergence from from the regular narrative. Yeah, I think that it's so 
complicated, like the bucket of expectations that people who have wombs are like saddled with. And it's on the one hand, if you're a person who like has a womb and is excited about having a womb, like that's a thrilling privilege. And there are like people in my life, there are trans women in my life who I know would like love that. Um, But on the flip side, it puts you on a biological time scale to make this very big choice. And you have to make that choice whether or not you have strong feelings about it. I, I don't know, like before you even know what you think about the issue, you know that you have this choice to make. And people have no problem asking you about it. Absolutely. And you, do you want to have kids? Are you ever going to have kids? And so like, as a PSA, everyone, stop, stop. asking people about it. Like, <laughs> don't do it. Just don't do it. First of all, it's rude. <laughs> Second of all, like you don't know what people have been through with their bodies and their genders or their fertility or their attempts at pregnancy or their desire to not get pregnant for various complicated reasons. And it can be very harmful to just like lob that into chill social conversation. So this is my angry PSA for people to stop asking the womb having among us if they're going to use them or not. <laughs> my my favorite question I got was from a nurse at my doctor's office who said, but what if your husband decides that he wants kids later? Good for him. I mean, like what? <laughs> that really doesn't happen. I mean, yeah. I guess. <laughs> like, um. Yeah, and and the way that people feel like they can just absolutely weigh in. Um, yeah. What if your husband decides he wants to live in Kentucky? Like, yeah, I, 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 some things are out of my control. Yeah, you don't want to live in Kentucky. I'm just going to, well, I mean, I love Kentucky, but that's a separate issue. I, <laughs> I don't know. It's really wild to me how people, I don't know, maybe because it's a thing that so many of us contend with in life and it feels common that it seems like it's on the table. But the flip side of that, too, is I talk about my friend in that essay um, who was trying to become a mother on her own and doing like um, IVF, essentially. And people would say when she talked about that or when I talked about like maybe that's something I would do someday, people are like, oh, my God, that's so brave. That's so great that you would do it on your own. And like, I just want to flip people the bird and be like, uh, like maybe like you don't know, like maybe that's the thing I always wanted to do on my own and this is me realizing my life plan. Or maybe I thought things were going to work out differently and this is like not the way I wanted them to go. And so like calling someone brave when they don't have any other choice feels pretty bad. Yes. And I, without giving too much away, um, you don't tell us what happened with your friend um, which I think is a wonderful way to subvert the narrative in the, in the final section of your book. Thank you. I think that there are so many stories that you just are encouraged to read for the ending, or we're sort of taught that we don't know how to think about things we're doing in our life unless they quote unquote work out or they result in a specific result and like I don't know I I play guitar this is a weird example but like I play guitar and I'm really bad at playing guitar 
and I love it so much. And there is no part of me that thinks that someday I'm going to like perform in a concert or like become <laughs> really good. It's, it's not about that. And if I were thinking about it as a means to an end sort of thing, I mean, obviously with fertility treatments, it's a different bag, but like the idea of trying something new and like engaging in the process of being like, this is the thing I want to try. This is the thing I'm going to do. And I'm hoping for whatever, but like, it's worth it to have tried. And it's worth telling a story about the person trying without saying, and here's the carrot at the end of the stick. You know what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense. Sure does. Think about it a lot. Um, CJ, this has been so great. Before we go, would you like to recommend some books for us? I would. I would. I would. Um, I will recommend the things I just finished reading because they are on my mind. Um, But I just finished reading uh, Night Crawling by Layla Motley, which is wonderful um, and sort of smooshed me in a million different ways. Um, But she's got a gorgeous voice on the page and I just fell in love with the characters and especially the couple who sort of emerged towards the end and they won't say who they are, but I love them. Um, And then I just also read um, Tova Janssen's The Summer Book. Um, She's the one who wrote The Moomins and it's so lovely. It's so like almost nothing happens, but everything happens. And there's like a very cross grandmother and a very cross six-year-old on a Finnish island and it just brought me so much joy this summer. Um, next up on my list is Benita Blackburn's How to Wrestle a Girl and Vanessa Hua's Forbidden City. And I, oh, oh, and I just finished reading. Sorry, this is what I do to my No, I love it. Um, those are up next for me. But I just finished reading too Gwen Kirby's book, Shit Cassandra Saw. They're short stories. They're so good. They're funny. They're like, they're all different. Like they're not technically linked, but there's a lot that holds them together in a satisfying way. And the, the full title of the title story is actually shit Cassandra saw, but didn't tell the Trojans because by that point, fuck them anyway. (laughs) And like, that just tells you everything you need to know. It's so good. I hope a million people read it. I love this. Thank you so much, CJ. Thank you for having me. It was fun to talk about life and art and things that apparently I'm sort of ticked off about sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> we all. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.